Steve here. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that you can now support Rootbound on Patreon. Learn how, plus more ways to support the podcast at rootboundpodcast.com slash support. Now, on with the show. You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Brought to you by Kale Chimp. Did you know that chimpanzees eat kale? Apparently at the zoo, some do. Visit rootboundpodcast.com backslash kalechimp for an exclusive offer. Kale Chimp. Apparently some chimps eat kale. Who knew? Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of Rootbound. My name is Steve, and before we get started with the episode, I thought it would be a good time to remind everyone out there how Rootbound works. I haven't done that reminder for a while, so here it goes. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, and each week I invite on a guest who tells me about a plant that means something to them, and then I tell the guest about a plant that means something to me, and through this process we all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, I'm not going to spend too much more time on this intro part of the podcast because the density of dazzling details brought by our guest this week is through the roof. So let's just get right to it. Hi, Christina. Welcome to Rootbound. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very good. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. My plant is agave. Oh, awesome. I, I love agave mainly for tequila purposes. Um, yes. But I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, um, that is what agave is associated with, tequila, and recently as a sugar substitute in contemporary culture. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I always thought agave's primary use is culinary until I visited an Aztec craft center near Teotihuacan in Mexico, where I was introduced to the versatility of agave beyond its culinary uses. And so um, when you asked me to come on this podcast and choose a plant, the first thing that popped into my mind was agave because I have this, this memory of the guide at the Aztec craft center shaving and shredding and pulling apart the leaf of the agave plant and just showing us all of its different uses. But, you know, I, I was still considering other plants. I was thinking, okay, like if it's a plant podcast, I have to choose a plant that's, you know, unique for being a plant in and of itself, like something that has like a unique process of photosynthesis or, or maybe reproduction. But in the end, I just had to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, to be honest, I don't know if I'm interested in plants in and of themselves. I'm more interested in the way that plants have influenced human civilizations and communities. And agave is an incredible example of a plant that is a living and evolving member of a human community, particularly in Mexico and southwestern United States. Very good. Well, I I am a big fan of like how plants and humans interact. I think that's what this podcast is, is what it's for. So I'm very glad you made that choice. Like I like the cool, weird scientific things and stuff that is botanical about plants, but I like it when it's somebody who cares about that telling me, you know, so, and my personal interest in plants is a little bit more about um, how they're used, which I'll get into when I talk about my plant a little bit, but, uh, and and maybe I'll jump in because agave is something I, I almost 
made this a special episode, which we only talk about one plant, but I felt like I wasn't quite there with my relationship with agave, but I do have some, some maybe some fun personal agave experiences uh, that I might share later. You know, I started doing research on agave last night and <laughs> it, you know, now I'm that much more interested in uh, the plant. And, you know, anybody growing up in Southern California, as I did, is familiar with the rosettes of the strong, fleshy leaves covered with its spiny edges. And agave, you know, comes in all different sizes and slightly different shades, different leaf patterns. But this is what I found out. So agave is a genus, and it includes over 300 species. Whoa. And it's native. Yeah, yeah. It's native to the hot and arid regions of the Americas. Um, but there are some species uh, that can be found in the tropical regions of South America. And here I came across a new word. This is what I loved about doing my research. I learned some new words. And this word is xerophyte. And it comes from the Greek zeros futon. And xerophyte refers to a plant that has adaptations to survive in an environment with little liquid water. So agave is, with an is X? a xerophyte. Yes, with an X. Yes. X-E-R-O. P-H-Y-T-E, yes. Cool. And then I learned another new word, and that is monocarpic, from mono meaning single and carpos fruit. Um, and monocarpic refers to plants that flower and sed seeds only once and then die. Uh, most agave are monocarpic because each individual rosette flowers only once and then dies. The whole um, plant? There are some, yeah, only, yeah. Flowers Whoa. only once and then dies. Whoa. There are some polycarpic species of agave, but mainly they are monocarpic. So what does flowering mean for agave? So during flowering, a tall stem or a mast grows out of the center of the rosette. And the mast can be very tall. Actually, I looked Have it up. Have you seen that before? Have you seen yes, that in person? Yes, yes. Yeah. If like... Yeah, if you're hiking anywhere in Southern California, yeah. you will see these masts coming out of the rosettes. Of it's the so cool because I, I feel like, you know, we when when I at least first learned about agave, you just think of it as just like, it looks like a giant aloe or something like that, you know? Uh, but then when you learn about the flowers and, and this these like giant stalks that come out of the middle of them, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's very cool looking. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm actually going to get to the aloe um, <laughs> because... When I first told my boyfriend, Rob, that I'm going to do a podcast on agave, he's like, well, don't forget the aloe. And I learned something very interesting. Oh, that aloe okay. is not agave. I, I think I knew that, but they look very similar. They do, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they look really similar, and they are actually part of the same order. And the order mm. is asparagalis, which is the same order as asparagus. So speaking oh. of the masts of the agave, they look like giant asparagi. Oh, so this is interesting. I'm, I haven't talked about this plant, and I probably will sometime, but just a little spoiler. There's also a plant called the yucca, or the yucca with two C's, not with one C. Very similar, and it sends up this stalk that looks like a giant asparagus, too. Yeah. So if if I remember correctly, so um, aloe and agave are of the same order, asparagalis, um, and then agave and yucca are actually part of the same family. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So yes. yucca and agave are closer related than agave and aloe, but they are still um, uh, different genuses. Very interesting. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Also, I learned that one of the best ways to tell the difference between aloe um, and agave is uh, by their habitat. So aloe are native to tropical regions of southern mm. Africa and the Arabian Peninsula and the Indian Ocean. Um, although aloe has become naturalized to nearly every part of the world, 
Um, agave is native only to the dry regions of the Americas. Ah, uh, I see. Very interesting. Back to to flowering. How does this work? So the the, the mask grows super tall. The Guinness Book of World Record is forty feet Whoa. or twelve meters. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the mast eventually bears a large number of short tubular flowers, but after the flowers bloom, the original rosette desiccates or dries up and dies. Um, now, humans can slow the process of the death of the aloe, but they can't, uh, of the agave, but they can't prevent it. So um, what happens in some regions of Mexico is that they will cut the mast off as it starts to grow to mm. um, prolong the life of the rosette. But eventually, after the mass does grow, uh, the plant will die. Interesting. That reminds me, there's some other plants like this, and, and maybe you can confirm if this is the case. And, and it makes sense, I guess, because it being a zero a zero file or zero fight? What did zero you say? Zero fight. A zero fight. It, it, it needs, you know, because plants need sun and water, and it's got plenty of sun, but the water takes a while, right? And so it needs this time to build up the the power and the f and the water and the resources to flower. So it's just mm -hmm. sitting there collecting sun for so long. And then eventually it's like, okay, oh, yeah, it's ready. I'm going to send up my flower and like reproduce. Uh, but yeah. if you, if you cut it, like you said, then I imagine the plants like, Oh, something happened to my flower. I need a little more time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It basically expends all of its energy on this flowering process, all of the water that it's stored up. And as a result, it just has no more, not enough nutrients to, to survive after the flowering. The interesting. Blooming. So interesting. Um, but as it matures and begins to flower, there are suckers that form just above the roots at the base of the rosette. And these suckers will go on to form new plants. Oh. Now, you might be familiar with the suckers by the term pups. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I have no green thumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> and perhaps the only plant that has ever lasted in my household was actually an agave plant that lived maybe for one year before I I somehow killed it. Mm -hmm. um, but it did produce pups. And I was told that I'm supposed to remove those pups and then place them in separate pots so that they can then develop their own mast and grow into maturity. Interesting. Yeah, uh -huh. that's like all those people who are really into like growing various succulents. Those are a yeah. lot of the times who those reproduce. Um, that, what was like, oh, I lost what I was going to say. Continue, sorry. Yeah, so so in addition to being a monocarpic xerophyte, um, agave is also a perennial. And I knew the term perennial, mm -hmm. but I was surprised to learn that perennial is not a plant that flowers every year. A perennial is rather a term that describes a plant that lives more than two years and grows very slowly. And so many species of agave can live 60 years before flowering. I was actually reading about oh a rosette at the University of Michigan that lived to be 80 years old and grew so tall that the workers had to remove one of the panes of the greenhouse window to let it grow out of the facility. That's how Whoa. tall the plant was. Amazing. Yeah. And because so they live cool. so long, yeah, agave are frequently referred to as century plants or centurions. I, you know, I just I just learned that the other day because I have this app called Seek that lets you, you point it at plants and it tells you what the plant is. And there was an agave, it was an agave, I think Americana, 
and it said Century Plant. And I was like, whoa, I had never heard that before. Really fascinating. Yeah, agave americana is the largest category of agave. And, you know, most of the agave that you see growing in gardens around, um, you know, California, the ones that people um, plant for aesthetic reasons, yeah, they are the agave americana. Very interesting. So other thing that I learned that I was quite surprised by is that agave is not a um, Native American word. I had assumed that since agave is native to this part of the world, that the term would have had its roots here as well. Um, but agave is actually from the ancient Greek, meaning illustrious or noble, which of course refers to its very strong, powerful mass that grows out of the center of the rosette. Interesting. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and in Spanish, agave is referred to as maguey, which is ah, M-A-G-U-E-Y, um, which is kind of similar to the Nahuatl. So Nahuatl is the most widely spoken indigenous language of Mexico. And in Nahuatl, agave is metal. Um, mm. And... So I thought maguey, metal, maybe kind of similar, but I did some research into an etymological dictionary. And um, the conclusion is, is that the word maguey probably comes from the Taino word mawe. Um, oh, now the Taino were a Caribbean people that Columbus first encountered upon arriving in what is today the Bahamas. And so this suggests that agave by the time that Columbus had arrived, had already made its way into the cultures of the Caribbean. And it's also one of the first plants that fascinated Europeans when they came to the Americas. And so agave or mawe in Taino or maguey in Spanish was introduced to Europe in the mid 16th century. And if we remember, you know, Columbus began his pillaging, raiding and destruction in 1492. So that's just about 50 years after Columbus arrived, we already have agave plants in Europe. Super fast. That is so, so, so interesting. Wow. Really, yeah. people were really into it. Some of the other ways that agave is referred to in legend and folklore and just in popular culture is the plant of a thousand uses. And this is really why I became interested in agave and what I remember about that demonstration from the Aztec Cultural Center. It's also called the Tree of Wonders. In fact, it was so important to Mesoamerican culture that there is a goddess, Mayawel, who is associated with the plant and is a is a symbol of fertility. In Aztec art, the, the, the kind of like headdress of this goddess resembles um, the agave plant. Um, but yeah, let's get into its uses. Yeah, um, yeah, so I'm excited for this. Tequila, Besides that's the first yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 tequila, mezcal, right? So um, all tequila is mezcal, but not all mezcal is tequila. Did you know that, Steve? I did, because Carl and I visited Oaxaca a few years ago, which is a center of mezcal, but not very much tequila. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so mezcal is a vast category of spirits made from agave, and tequila is a small subset of mezcal made from a very specific type of agave called blue agave, agave azul. Also um, known as agave tequiliana, which I love it. Yes, when the, agave uh, tequiliana. The, yeah. uh, the uh, scientific names have... Uh, have a, a booze in the name. That's always fun. Which, fun fact, well, my plant kind of is in that same vein, but we'll, we'll get to it later. Did you notice how I didn't say any of the Latin names and I let you pronounce all of them? <laughs> clever, clever. I'm very <laughs> yeah. bad at pronouncing Latin names, but uh, I'm happy to take that bullet for you. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so there are actually uh, over 40 different types of agave that are used in mezcal making. And that means that there is a great variety and types of mezcals on the market. Um, so to make mezcal, mescaleros take the core of the agave plant known as the piña and they roast it in canonical pits in the ground before distillation. And this cooking method is why mezcals often taste smokier than tequilas. Whereas to make tequila, um, the blue agave piña is steamed rather than roasted before distillation. That makes, I, I kind of always wonder that. And I've seen mezcal being made. We went to a, a mezcaleria in Oaxaca and we saw the process of this big pit where they're stirring it. And I've gotten really into fermentation lately. And so think about how it works. And the, the, the trick is you got to get... You got to get the sugars, right? And it's something so, so like piney and woody, like mezcal, the sugars aren't going to be free. So cooking it makes sense. But I was wondering about tequila, uh, and it makes sense. They're steaming it to loosen the sugars or free the sugars as opposed to roasting it. Super cool. Yeah, but, you know, the traditional drink of Mesoamerica is not mezcal or tequila, but pulque, um, and there's a 2,000-year tradition of making pulque from agave. In fact, I found these really cool illustrations from 16th century Franciscan codices of the indigenous people of Mexico fermenting pulque. Um, yeah, so pulque is ma made from the fermented sap of the agave plant. And the way the sap is harvested is that the mast is cut at the base right before the time of maturity, right before it flowers. And then the sap collects in the middle of the rosette and that produces enough of that liquid for fermentation. Whoa, I didn't know that. I've, I've had pulque before, but I didn't know that was the process. It's really, it's a really fun drink. It's got, it can be a little bit pulpy because you get some of the like, the like pulpiness in there. Uh, but yeah, I was in, I was in Mexico City and uh, uh, Xochimilco, which is like this area that has all these, um, canals they call it the venice of mexico and and these guys will pull up on their little boat and sell you pool case so i have this picture of me with with all of carla's family uh, holding a giant like styrofoam cup of pool case, and i was very happy yeah, and, you know, pulque, as described by Wikipedia, is the color of milk with a viscous consistency and a sour yeast-like taste. Mm -hmm. So that Wikipedia sounds, doesn't right. make it sound very good, but I've tried it before, and I actually enjoyed it. What did you think, Steve? Yeah, I liked it, too, and I, I like that class of alcoholic beverage, which sometimes are called chichas, um, which, which don't – they're cool because they're really – a lot of alcohol is from a European tradition, but this kind of drink is is really from an American tradition of these kind of pulpy beverages that are very naturally fermented and and they're their own funky thing, which I think a lot of people haven't experienced, but they're starting to. And yeah, it's it's fun. So I think it's really cool to think that you have three different alcohols that are made from you know this one genus, uh, agave. And in addition to drinks, uh, you know, agave has uh, four edible parts, so it's used popularly in cuisine. Those are the flowers are edible, the leaves are edible, the stalks are edible, and of course the sap, which is make uh, make the pulque. And it has been a major food source for the indigenous people of Mexico, as well as the Navajo and the Hohokam people of the southwestern United States. Um, so yeah, used widely throughout indigenous cool. cuisine. But I want to eat some agave leaves and flowers. I didn't know that was a, a thing. 
Yeah, they're they're prepared in many different ways, and you know, I, I was looking up some of their recipes, but I, I was just really interested to get into some of its other uses because, of course, when we think of a plant, I think the first thing we think of is you know how to eat it, how to make alcohol of it, but you know, plants are <laughs> yeah, useful yeah. in other ways as well. Yeah. So other uses of agave. Um, so the leaves of the agave have spines, which make it a perfect choice for live fencing to control cattle and also to prevent erosion. So if you're driving through the Mexican countryside today, sometimes you'll see farms surrounded by agave plants. And there's actually a purpose for that, that it's, it's this live fencing system that not just separates farms, but protects what's inside the, um, the cool. agriculture. Very cool. Yeah. Um, the stalks can also be dried and used to make musical instruments such as windpipes. Um, so agave is used in, um, you know, some traditional music uh, of, of the indigenous people. Um, agave has medicinal and hygienic uses. Since the sap is highly caustic, it has been traditionally used to cleanse wounds. And the juice of the leaves can be used for soap and detergent. In fact, it lathers with suds similar to store-bought soap. Wow, that's incredible. Oh my gosh, I gotta try some agave soap. But I think the probably some of the coolest part of the agave is its fiber. Okay, so if you pound the leaves and remo remove the pulp, it yields these thick fibrous strands that have been used by the indigenous people and still continue to be used today. These strands can be used for making tools such as rope, fishing nets, baskets and bags for carrying storage. In fact, agave rope is so strong that it's still used as cords in mining and in shipping. And the fibers can also be used for textiles to make mats, blankets, and clothes. And the fibers absorb natural pigments very easily. So textiles made from agave fiber are very bright and colorful. Um, in fact, until I found this out, I didn't realize that I had already seen textiles made from agave during my travels in Mexico. So um, a lot of that kind of like traditional textile art, I would say a lot, but at least some of that traditional textile art is made with agave fiber. Wow, I, how did I not know that either? That is so cool. I'm I'm looking at some pictures now. I just had to Google agave rope, and it does look cool. I'm also going to Google agave uh, textiles because I also got to I got to see what you mean as far as yeah and oh, agave yeah. yeah and agave is also sometimes referred to as the needle and thread plant because the thorny tip of the leaf can be used as a needle or all. So if the leaf is trimmed and scraped correctly, it leaves behind an already threaded needle, meaning the <laughs> needle is the tip and the fibers form the thread. So you could just start weaving as soon as you dry the fiber. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And I guess, yeah, you could just like start f going and then adding more to it as you go, I guess, right? If you yeah. run out of that one. That's, that is amazing. It's also used in construction. So the spines on the edges of the leaves, especially of the larger agave plants, are so strong when they're dried that they can be used as nails. When the leaves are dried, they can be used to uh, for thatched roofing. And the leaves are concave, so they actually form natural gutters on thatched roofs. I'm just I'm just gobsmacked about all these uses. With this is just <laughs> yeah. incredible. But I think one of this is this is definitely the cool for me this was definitely the most shocking use is that agave has been used as paper for centuries. Whoa. Um so yeah, if you strip the bark of the leaves in the right way or also if you if you pound the leaves and dry the pulp, 
you can make paper from agave. So each leaf, if stripped correctly, actually contains two pieces of paper, one on the inside and one on the outside of the leaf. And agave paper was used in codices for economic and ritual purposes before the arrival of the Spanish. And there's some records of agave paper being used as early as the first century. And you know what? There's still more to discover about agave. Um, today, agave is being considered as a potential source of biofuel because of its high sugar content. Uh, so who knows? Maybe in the future, we're going to be running on agave cars. Wow. Fascinating. Oh, my gosh. Do you have, do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details? I feel like the, 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 the amount of dazzling details here has been like the most dense of any plant we've talked about. And, um, uh, no. So, you know, that, that, that's what I have in terms, you know, obviously there was also ritual uses of agave. It was inspiration for art and aesthetics. Uh, you know, if, if you are familiar with Aztec art, Aztec headdresses, you know, you, they, they're very reminiscent of the, the agave plant. So, we know that the, these cultures respected this plant and, um, you know, certainly used it extensively, um, both in their daily life as well as their ritual practices. So I just think it's, a, it's an incredible plant that, um, you know, made possible so many things. Like, for example, just having, um, you know, really strong rope provides for so much technological innovation. Um, if you think about Mexico City, you said you've been there, right? Mexico City was built on a lake. Um, so the Aztecs created these islands by pounding stakes into the ground. Well, these stakes were tied together by, guess what? Agave cord. Agave. Thank you for sharing about agave today. Uh, do you mind if I share a plant with you? I would love that. Thank you, Steve. I feel like it's, you know, I, we may not get quite as deep, but I, I was very impressed by your presentation of agave, and I'm going to be, like, going down rabbit holes about it, at, uh, like, for a while now. But my, my plant I chose also has an alcohol use, and uh, it's called the scuppernong. Wow. Are you familiar with the scuppernong? <laughs> no, I'm not. The scuppernung? Scuppernong. S-C-U-P-P-E-R-N-O-N-G. Um, <laughs> you, you might know a little bit more. I'm going to tell you it's a Latin name now. And this might give you a clue. Its Latin name is Vitis Rotundifolia. Hmm. Does that first word Vitis mean anything to you? I don't know. Um, it reminds me of the Czech king. Is that? And unrelated. So vi okay. vitis is the genus for grapes. Ah, viticulture. Indeed, in viticulture. There you go. And the, um, now this, the, the grape that most people know, the one that is used in winemaking in Europe is, is vitis vinifera. So there's that vin, vine, you know, wine thing in there. Vitis rotundifolia is a native grape to North America. And it's sometimes called, uh, uh, well, it's, it is known as the scuppernong. And I'm going to get a little bit, there's actually a little bit, I'm growing scuppernong, but we'll get into a second. The, the Vitis rotundifolia, the more common name for the, uh, the whole species is called muscadine grapes. And scuppernong is a uh, particular variety of muscadine grape. 
all under Vitis rotundifolia, which means round leaf grape. It's native to North America. Now, a lot of times when people think about uh, American grapes, we think about the story about how the American grape both caused uh, the death of European grapes and then saved European grapes because of this disease called phylloxera. Um, this is not the grape that saved or killed the, the European grape, though. That is the uh, that is the fox grape, or Vitis labrusca. What's interesting about Vitis rotundifolia, though, it's it's there's there's a, actually a ton of native grapes, um, but uh, but the scuppernong. Some people argue it actually should be in its own genus because it has forty chromosomes instead of thirty eight, like all the grapes. So and and it is a little bit different. It grows wow. more in the south. It's like they call it the southern grape. It th- thrives in more humid and hot climates than most grapes do. It has a much thicker skin than a lot of grapes. The, the skin is quite thick. And so so even though it's still in the vitis genus, some people say maybe it should be its own thing. And it also doesn't graft well with other genuses in the grape. So like you, uh, the way that they save the European grapes is they grafted uh, European vine stock onto American root stock, and that made the grapes... Uh, more immune to phylloxera, which is a, a North American, you know, uh, grape disease. But the muscadine, though it is immune, mostly immune to phylloxera, you can't really graft other grapes to it, so it's not mm-hmm. good for that purpose. However, you can make wine with it, and it has been, wine has been made with uh, the muscadine grape, particularly the scuppernong variety, uh, because the scuppernongs are bigger and sweeter than the more wild muscadines, which tend to be smaller, um, uh, the Scuppernong is also normally a bronzish color and makes a nice white wine, but there are other muscadines that are other colors. Um, going, going to some history, cause you know, I know that you're, you're a historian. I thought I would throw in a little bit of history. Um, there is some reference to, uh, these, these grapes going back a very long time. There was one reference about like when Walter Raleigh first hit the shores, seeing a lot of grapes, but people actually think he was mistaking seaweed for grapes. Uh, in his first account of seeing all these grapes because um, there's seaweed that has these little balls. And there's a funny quote about that. But then later, there is a quote from Sir Walter Raleigh that says, We have discovered the main to be the goodliest soil under the cope of heaven, so abounding with sweet trees that bring rich and pleasant grapes, such greatness yet wild as France, Spain, nor Italy hath no greater. So these grapes were all over the place. And in fact, uh, on Roanoke Island... There is a grape known as the mother vine, which is the oldest known grape to man. It's over 400 years old. Some people think wow. it might have been there pre-colonialism, but there is definitely documentation of this particular vine going back to uh, the 1700s. Wow. And I've seen pictures of it. I really want to visit it now. It is massive. Um, when the, the couple who bought the property in the 50s they said that the tangled branches, uh, tangled branches occupied over two acres and they cut it back and trimmed it. And so now it is only 30 feet by 120 feet. Wow. And these giant, um, they have it in these like giant uh, trellises. And they also gave some of the, the cuttings of the mother, uh, mother vine to a local vineyard who makes wine from the same like it's the same plant essentially in a different location that so you can buy that today you can buy this wine that is from like you know the the heritage of a 400 year old grape which is pretty cool let's get back to that name scuppernong which is a very uh, you know strange sounding name i said scuppernong is a particular variety of muscadine grape and they tend to have bigger berries sweeter fruit 
Um, I was trying to figure out what the name Scubbernong came from, and apparently the name Scubbernong comes from an Algonquin word, a scopo, which is the name of the sweet bay laurel tree, so not the <laughs> grape. But Ascopo means the tree, but then the word Ascopernung apparently means the place of the Ascopo. So a place became known as Ascopernung, and that place also had a lot of these grapes. So they started calling the grape Scuppernong, even though it's a name more associated with a tree. So that's pretty interesting. But it, it's it's pretty well known. There's places in the South where that people don't really talk use the name Muscadine grape or don't even call them grapes. They just call them Scuppernongs. There's a few other, I didn't write them down, but there's a few other like variations on the name Scuppernong, like Sculpin or Sculpin. I don't know. I, I don't, look them up. But there's a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. names for it. But let's now move into the reason why I, uh, why it's meaningful to me is because we have one. I mentioned a little before, we are growing. We have a, we have a scuppernong growing in our front yard. It's about four years old. We, we planted it right when we moved in this house. And it, the first two years it was growing a little slowly, but then last year it just exploded and it is, it grew so fast just so it covered this trellis all in one year just amazing it's so so productive and like other people i've heard people trying to grow like european grapes around here and they have problems because of disease and the heat and everything like this not for the scuppernong it uh it grows so well and so much so last year was the first year i made one bottle of wine with my scuppernong grapes congratulations thank you and this year i have uh it is now fermenting which will be my second bottle. Maybe I'll get a little bit more than a bottle this year. I did get more grapes this year, so we'll see. But yeah, it's been really fun to make wine. And I'm if you've listened to some other episodes, I'm really into making mead because I'm a beekeeper. Um, but I'm really into these um, natural, like wild processes for making alcohol because there's all these things you can read online about being very specific and exact and sterilizing everything and adding yeast and adding all this other stuff. It's very like scientific and chemical but people have been making alcohol for a long time, and, and they didn't do any of that stuff. And particularly with grapes, grapes have some of the highest sugar content of any fruit in the world. And they just, they'll just ferment. Like, you don't have to do anything, which is fun. Like, you don't have to add yeast. You don't have to do anything. So I basically just take the, the, the grapes, the scuppernongs, <laughs> and uh, crush them with my hands in a big glass bowl. And then I let them sit on the counter with a, with a cloth over them overnight and... The next morning, you can see the bubbling starting to happen. Wow! Is, and then I just strain out all the leftovers through a like a like a cloth, and it's in a glass jar now. And uh, every day I crack it open, and it, you can tell there's tons of CO two there. And I shake it up, and it bubbles up like crazy. And so, no, the only ingredient in this in this is just me squeezing the grape juice, and it's fermenting away very nicely. So, is it going to be a sweet? Um, the one that I had last year was not, I like to let stuff ferment as long as possible. And I think, I think, you know, sometimes wild, uh, fermented stuff does stay sweeter because the, the yeast is not as like strong and can't convert as much of the, the sugars into alcohol. But mine last year wasn't that sweet. Mine last year, however, was pretty tart. And I think it's because I harvested the grapes a bit too soon. I might have done that again this year, so we'll see. It might be pretty tart and funky. <laughs> you know, it doesn't... Mine didn't really taste... I mean, it tasted a little whiny, but uh, definitely different than, like, anything you would, like, buy. And more more tart. Um, it is a white wine. Um, 
so we'll see. I'm curious. It's it's it's, it's the fun thing because it is it is definitely a gamble of like what you're gonna get. But it was drinkable last year. I had to. I it wasn't very drinkable right away. When I first bottled it, it was really sour. But then I learned this trick that if you put wine like that in the fridge for a while, the more uh, sour components will crash out of solution and sink to the bottom, and then you can pour it off, and it won't be quite as as, as sour. So is Scuppernong uh, blended with any other type of grapes uh, for the wine market? Generally, n- no. I think I think often the Scuppernong is um, is just made into wine itself and there is a little bit of like local wine more in the south actually like virginia where i live is a little bit kind of at the northern edge of the scuppernong because it really is known as like a southern grape and you can there are like vineyards around that just make scuppernong wine but i don't think anyone's doing any blending of it i do know there's some uh the the vitis labrusca the fox grape which is the more well-known american grape People do blend with that around here, and there's some vineyards that that make some blends of that grape and uh, European grapes. But I'm not sure if anyone's made blends. That's an interesting question. I just feel the name Scuppernong is so cool that it's got to be added to everything. Yeah, yeah we we got to we got to make yeah we got to make Scuppernong wine a thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one last little f- uh, fact is that my the variety that I have is called Carlos which I just think is a fun name <laughs> for, for, a, for a variety. Uh, and it was uh, sometime in the 50s it was um, selected. And it's, it's, it was selected because it has these really big f- fruit, even comparatively to other Scuppernongs. And they really, I don't know why it's called Carlos. I was looking into it and I couldn't figure that out. But uh, the berries, when they're ripe, turn this, they look like they're made of bronze. It's really beautiful. Like they start out green, but when they're fully ripe, they 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 have this like shine and bronze color to them that is like something I've never seen in a grape before. So they're they're really cool. I assume you picked uh, this variety because of Carla. <laughs> I I you know I didn't. Um, it was a, it was a happy accident. It it is the it is the most um, well known variety of Scuppernong. There's a few other ones, but it's the one, and it's also very productive and grows. It's one of the more northern ones as well. So as far as like what I could get in this area, it's like when I first heard about muscadines, I was like, I want to grow one of those. And I was like, I really wanted to grow grapes in our yard. And I was doing all this research and everyone was saying, well, if you try to grow grapes, they don't do well and you got to really baby them because that's hard. But that was talking about the European grape, which aren't suited to this climate. But then I read about the muscadine and I was like, that's so cool. So I had to get one and yeah, it, it's growing like crazy. I, I got to like really trim it down this year because it's, it's kind of growing out of control. Do you do any pickling? Uh, not as much as I want to. I, that, that's, that's kind of my next road to go into is pickle. I've done a little bit. I've done sauerkraut. I've done some other, other kinds of uh, lacto-fermented things, but I'm a little bit more into the, uh, the alcoholic fermentation right now. So I'm making all sorts <laughs> of different meads the wine that I can only make once a year because that's when you get the grapes. But then I did, I do like mixing the honey and other things. So I do have one small batch now of, of grape mead where I took some of the, I took some of the, uh, leftover like skins and stuff from my grape, uh, my winemaking process and put it in with water and honey as well. So that'll be another drink, but I'm making all sorts of weird meads. If you ever come visit, I'll, 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 I'll give you all sorts of strange alcoholic concoctions, which are, are is my hobby that I start. Yeah. That, yeah. I've been doing for a couple of years now. Well, that, that, that's yeah. That, that's another reason to come visit. Indeed. Um, yeah. I, I was asking if you pickle because I'm just looking at uh, pictures of the scuppernong on Google and they have such beautiful leaves. Um, I'm just thinking of making dolmas. Oh yeah. I really want to do that. 
I, I, the the leaf thing has never been in my brain that much, but yeah, I really want to do some stuff with the grape leaves. Um, I've been to Romania a whole bunch, and they have like a dish that's made of like it's similar, I think, to Domas that is made with grape leaves. And yeah, I want to try the grape leaf thing because apparently they are just as good as as the European grape for doing that kind of like wrapping and steaming thing. Are the leaves um, thick since the grape itself they're, is kind of thick? Or? They're not really thick. They're a little smaller, I think, than you think of normal grape leaves. And I think be, they're called rotondifolia, which means round-leafed. Mm. They're not really round, but maybe they're a little bit less of that grape leaf shape. Maybe they're a little bit more like roundish. I, I wouldn't have called them rotundifolia um, if I had the choice. But I, but yeah, they're, they're a bit smaller, so it's going to be a little bit harder to wrap stuff in them. Um but it's still possible. I, I need to explore that because I have a ton of leaves. It's a it's a big it's a big plant. So that's really cool, Steve. Yeah. Well, that's the scubbernong, and uh, thanks you for uh, for letting me share that with you, and thank you for the really amazing agave facts. Well, thank you for having me here on today's podcast. I'm really glad I had the opportunity to, you know, share my interest in history through agave with you today. Okay, are you ready? Listen closely. That was the sound of my muscadine wine, or my scuppernong wine, uh, releasing some of the CO2. I just cracked open the jar for the first time in about a day, and all that CO2 came out. That means that the fermentation is moving along very nicely. I'll post some pictures of this on the social media. But it's looking really good. I'm going to try to like shake it up a little bit so we can hear some more of that fizzle of the fermentation. It's one of those swing top jars. All right, I'm going to pick up that whole jar and shake it around a little bit. Oh, yeah, there's lots of bubbles now. Yeah, it's looking very foamy. You want to shake this up every now and then in the beginning of the fermentation phase to make sure the yeast stays all alive and bubbly. Okay, I'm going to open it one more time. We should get a nice one last little sound from our wine in process. That was pretty cool. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Christina Markman. Christina is a travel lover and metalhead who also teaches medieval history at the University of California, San Diego. Rootbound is hosted by the homemade winemaker, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Krigaskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, you could track down one of the three alcoholic beverages made from agave, tequila, mezcal, or pulque. Apparently some chimps eat kale. Who knew? <laughs>